Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some of his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. He looked around them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Good morning. Uh, Hi, my name is Taylor. I'm the next-gen pastor here, and I get the opportunity to talk with you guys this morning. Uh, I came across an article uh, a few months ago, but it was kind of lamenting this idea that there's really no new technology out there anymore. Yes, we get new uh, items or new iPhones every now and then, uh, but everything's kind of a, a twist or an improvement on old things. Even the iPhone wasn't the first smartphone, but it was really just a computer with a calculator and a phone and all these really cool apps you could put on in your pocket. It wasn't necessarily a new invention, it was just kind of a rework of old things. And as we'll see in that, we got quite a big chunk of text to go through today. They all share this theme of a tension between the old and the new. And I think the irony is that I'm probably the youngest. Uh, ben Todd would argue that he's younger than I am. Uh, but I'm the youngest, but I still use paper 
every single time I speak up here because I value the, the old tradition of paper and using like an iPad or an iPhone kind of scares me because with my luck, it would crash as soon as I get up here and then I'll just babble for 30 minutes and no one wants that. But all these texts, they share this idea of a tension between the old and the new. And this text we are talking about today is, it's at an inflection point in the book of Luke. He's been having opposition with Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elite for a long time now. And he's teaching his disciples through his actions. In a way, there are, the last few chapters highlighted the old way of thinking. And he's about to show them what the new is going to look like. It rightly serves as that flex point between the old and the new. And the old is typically personified by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the old religious elite, the old guard. And the new is represented by Jesus and his ministry, his miracles, his teachings, and his show of authority. But there is this tension the text presents, especially from Luke's perspective, I think is valuable for us to kind of look at closer. As you heard in the video, there are a lot of things happening in this section. Uh, it's almost 30 verses plus, and they deal with feasting and fasting. Which if you were here last week, makes sense. Uh, Paul talked about this uh, sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners, so it's no coincidence that feasting and fasting comes up next, and also this idea of the Sabbath. Now, both of these ideas, fasting and Sabbath, they're very important, and we'll talk about them as we come across, but they are not really the focus here. They serve as a catalyst for Jesus's message. Jesus uses them to show how him and the Pharisees are different. And the Pharisees are the main opposition, and they have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years of tradition on their side, and they're going against Jesus, who just happens to be God incarnate. So whose, whose side would you really pick in this? But this is kind of where some of the Pharisees' arrogance and confidence comes from because they have all this tradition on their side versus this Jesus person who's only been around for 30 years. But I will give the Pharisees some slack. They are following tradition, and, and tradition isn't always bad. Uh, it's based off the teachings of God. They use the Torah, the Old Testament. They just have gone astray. And I don't want you to hear me say that all tradition is bad or a simple idea that old equals bad. I think we do need to learn from church tradition and history. It is a well that runs deep and is very, very valuable. I think there's value in singing hymns and learning ancient church teachings there's value in these things. I used to work at a church where we used to sing hymns every single week. And at first I was like, this is weird. But then as I did it more and more, I was like, oh, there's wisdom in these hundreds and hundreds of years of traditions. And they encourage us today. But for the religious elite, their worldview and religious understanding is that there was a pop proper place in time for things to happen. It was a very, for lack of a better word, rigid system of rules. At this time, you do this, but you don't do that. At this other time, you for sure should do this, but you for sure should not do that. They would say, yes, you are to be a compassionate person, but that shouldn't mean you eat with sinners and tax collectors. Especially, you shouldn't do these things on the Sabbath because the rules clearly state you do this and we do not break these rules. You're not supposed to do 
those things. And Jesus even recognizes this tension in verse uh, 6, 9. He says, Jesus said to them, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Pretty obvious question, I think, for us today. But Jesus is pointing out to them their rigid understanding puts a God and his compassion in a box. It's not how they are meant to understand the teachings of God. As we will see through today, what I hope we walk away from today is that Jesus has not just come to do away with the old, it's not that simple, but to ensure that the new kingdom is based on God's will and his alone. Jesus has come to not do away with the old, but to ensure that the new kingdom is based on God's will and his alone. And as I was studying this text, it has a deeper meaning than just the idea that old is bad, new is good. And while that is a layer of the story, I don't want you to hear me say that Jesus' new way is inferior to the Pharisees' old way. That is not what I'm saying at all. Jesus' new, new way is the better option, but not just because it is the newest thing on the block. In Luke's eyes, Jesus is not coming to try and start a new religion. There is a reason that we still hold dear in our faith the teachings of the Old Testament and Jewish writers. Jesus, difference between the Old Test, there is a difference between the Old Testaments and the Old Covenant that Jesus has come to fulfill. That, that word fulfilling is very, very important. It doesn't mean he's disregarding it and throwing it aside. It means he's completing it in order for the new covenant to take place. His new way is building off of the old way, correcting where the rabbinic teaching and the religious elites have gone astray and have pushed them over the years, corrupted by human sin, by greed, ignorance, or whatever it may have been. And Jesus wants to ensure that the new way is the fulfillment of the old covenant that God had established thousands of years ago and his new way is better than the old, but that doesn't mean we ignore the, the, fact, the past and forget where it was. And one of my favorite uh, authors, one of his quotes came to mind pretty quickly as I was studying this from C.S. Lewis. Uh, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. And he writes this idea of chronological snobbery, is what he calls it, uh, in the, his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. If you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen, that when we, we have all seen this when we do arithmetic. He's British, it's math, same thing. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. This is also good marriage advice, just saying. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road, and if this is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. And he wrote this uh, in about the 50s or 60s or so, but his observations, I, still, I think, still apply to us today. 
And so we're going to show that Jesus has come not to do away with the old, but to ensure the new kingdom is based on God's will and his alone. And the first point is this, that Jesus understands the old way. Jesus understood the old way. And for Jesus, his series of parables in chapter 5 highlight this idea pretty way, pretty, pretty well in how he addresses the issue between old and new. So let's go back and read Luke 5, 36 through 39. He says this, He told them in parables, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old, old one. Otherwise, they would have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wineskin into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, this is a bit of a shotgun approach of a parable, you could say, a mixing images and ideas. And just a quick reminder for all of us kind of what a parable is, the very common thing for Jesus to teach. It was a very common tool back in the day. But here's a kind of brief overview of what parables are. One, they tend to be brief with very little commentary. They are meant to be read and you to think, okay, what is he trying to say? Very few times in scripture, I can only think of two or three off the top of my head, where there's actually a uh, brief teaching on the parable. There's really no explanation to them sometimes. You're supposed to just know what they mean. And two, they use contemporary images. So this is why he uses things like patches, wineskin, wine. If Jesus was giving this parable today, he probably would use very different images, very different uh, method of teaching us and using different items. And three, they are most often God and kingdom focused. Tend to be brief, use contemporary images, and are usually focused on God, Father God, and kingdom. The general idea is that something you will see as we go through this day is that there's this tension between the new and the old. The first part makes sense, I think. We have to let go of the old to make room for the new. Jesus has come to make a new covenant that is better than what we truly need over the old covenant and the life lived under the law. And overall, this is very much true. Do not get me wrong there at all. Jesus has come to introduce God's kingdom, which is a completely new paradigm of how mankind should and ultimately will live. A covenant no longer based on performance, but solely based on the grace of God. A new covenant where the leper becomes healed, the outcasts are brought in, all those things that Jesus has been doing over the last few chapters in chapters 4 and 5. But we, also, we forget at times that Jesus was a Jew and a rabbi, meaning that his framework and the people he was dealing with were the Jewish people. The teachings of the law and Old Testament were all about how the Messiah would come and usher in this new kingdom and save the world. Their understanding of what it looked like was very different, though. His new way had a foundation in the history of Jewish tradition and beliefs. If you use that same image that C.S. Lewis talked about, they had gone down the wrong path and he needed to course correct them. The Pharisees have just taken a very, very, very wrong turn and Jesus was there to help. Jesus is taking what God has already been doing for thousands of years and fulfilling it 
This is that same idea in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most popular sermon, uh, where he says that not a single iota or dot will come, uh, be thrown away before it comes to pass. That he's saying, I'm not throwing away the old, but I am fulfilling it. The old, the law is not necessarily bad, but I have come to usher in something new. It's that same idea that Paul writes about in Romans, where he says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, the law that showed me my sin, I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. We cannot say the law itself is sinful, but that sin has used the law to give it power. At the end of the day, God gave the people of Israel the law and it was man's interpretation and practice of the law that has turned what was meant to be something that freed them and put them under bondage and slavery. This is why we, that language shows up so many times in the gospel and in Paul's epistles of being freed from the law, no longer in bondage or slavery. That image is very is consistent all throughout the New Testament. And that's what really defines Jesus' new kingdom and covenant. It's not bondage, but freedom. I think we lose sight of that at times when we fall into this trap of thinking that Following Jesus is based on the set of rules and laws. Jesus' new kingdom is based on becoming more like him. The same Jesus who sought out the lost, who pushed through cultural and political barriers, who strove to heal the broken and support the downtrodden. All the things that the law was meant to teach the Israelites but has become lost over so many years. And so when we look at this parable of tearing in the new garments and putting it on the old, of taking new wineskin and putting it into old wineskin, you notice Jesus highlights and honors the old and the new. They're not meant to be the same though. Both, you see both the old garment is ruined by putting a new patch on it. It doesn't, doesn't fit, doesn't look right. But also the new is torn and injured and damaged from doing that. You take the new wine and pour it into the old wineskins, both the new wine is spilt and the old wine bag is split. Both things are lost. Both things are ruined. If the parables were only trying to communicate that the new is better and the old is bad, there wouldn't be this sense of mourning and loss in the language of the text. And we see even in the questions and comments of the Pharisees that they are butting heads with Jesus because of his new interpretation, and I would argue the correct interpretation of the law, is because it's going against all this old tradition and knowledge that they think they have on their side. And they weren't just getting mad at Jesus because he was interpreting the law. That was a very common thing for people to do back then. Is you find a rabbi and he interprets the law and you think it's good, you follow him. They were pushing back because his interpretations were so countercultural and against so many things that they believed to be true, you could argue upside down understanding of things, that this is why they pushed back. This is why there's tension between him and the Pharisees. He was going way too far in their eyes. That you don't mess with these things. These things are set in stone. We don't touch them. 
And this, high, this is highlighted, even in Luke adds an extra line into this parable that no other gospel in the Matthew and Mark even sh- shares. He adds this line and says, no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. He's saying, saying the Pharisees do not want this new radical message, the new wine, because the old wine, traditions, old message is good enough for them. They are complacent and satisfied enough they do not need to hear Jesus. Their hearts have become so hardened. And this is why in the question about fasting, the religious elite say you are supposed to pray and fast while Jesus' disciples are doing something weird. They're drinking and eating and having fun and being happy. As readers of the Gospels, we know that Jesus has put a huge emphasis on prayer. So that claim off the top is, seems uh, false. They, they pray plenty of time. Jesus goes off on his own to pray often. But the fasting and feasting is a tension point here. For Jesus, he links repentance with a festive celebration rather than fasting. Repentance is associated with a festive celebration than with fasting. Fasting is what you do in times of mourning, but it's also what you do in times of meditation and spiritual processing. But it does carry this somber tone, and Jesus' people are not somber. The old way dictates that you're supposed to do these certain things at certain times. They would argue you have to fast at least two days a week, but Jesus' group is not defined by melancholy. It is defined purely by joy. And again, Jesus is not saying that fasting is bad, just that the old way of practicing fasting is no longer needed at this time. There will be a time to fast when he says the bridegroom leaves, but now is not the time. He values fasting. But to do something just because you were supposed to do it is not the way we're going about it anymore. And then we get these two pairs of stories about the Sabbath, and we aren't going to focus much on the actual act of Sabbath and the practices of Sabbath and how we today should use Sabbath in our lives. It is more of a catalyst rather than a focus in the story. But you should study Sabbath on your own. How does that come into your life now in the 21st century? It is an important topic, but just not the topic for today. But the shorthand on what Sabbath was, it was based off the idea that God created the earth in seven days and took six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. So therefore, we should rest. In the desert, during the Exodus, God told his people, to, hey, go gather food all six days, but on the six days, you should uh, gather twice as much, so on the seventh day, you don't have to. And Israel, being the stubborn people that they were, they didn't listen, and they tried, and they messed up a very common theme throughout the Old Testament. It was even one of the Ten Commandments, and it was, I think, the fourth commandment. There are some scholars out there that say it was placed in that position. Uh, There's this kind of idea in some scripture where the text kind of builds to a point and comes back down, and scripture is set close to the middle to show how important it is to practice the Sabbath. simple understanding of the Sabbath was to allow us, and on some level, the entire earth. They weren't supposed to gather and work the fields. That rest, and rest can be celebratory as much as relaxing. Uh, I think we think that, oh, to be Sabbath means I have to sit at home and do nothing and uh, just sit and veg. But no, Sabbath can include having 
parties, having people over, sharing a meal, it should include this jubilance in it. But it was to remember who God is and what he has done for them. And this was a huge practice of the Jewish faith. still is to this day. God wanted Sabbath to be a reminder that God provided for his people and that they should remember and honor him in that rest. But there's not a lot of actual text on Sabbath, but there are a lot of rules that have been added on top of Sabbath. Uh, There is a Jewish text that said, the rules about the Sabbath are like mountains hanging on a hair. For the teachings of scripture are, are scanty, but the rules are many. And there's a lot of crazy ones. Ones I came across was this idea that during the Sabbath, you aren't allowed to carry anything outside of your public house, out of your house. So you couldn't carry your keys, your wallet, your baby. You couldn't push strollers outside of your house. So they added this law to implement a thing called a rev, which is they would tie the string around a section of the city. And as long as you're within that string, you were considered inside your public zone. So you could carry your baby and push the stroller. And this still happens today. You can actually go and look up the Denver Rev and there's sections of Denver where there's a a kind of concentrated Jewish population where they say, okay, this is our Rev. And it's a literal string that's set up around the city and they check it every single week to make sure it doesn't break. It's still practice today. But it's this added rule on top of what the scripture has says. And the Pharisees are no different. They had so many opinions on what you should and should not do. And they're going against Jesus. Again, the son of God, who probably has the better understanding, but they think they're in the right. And, but Jesus has the authority to declare what the new kingdom will look like. Jesus has the authority to declare what the new kingdom will look like. And so we have these two stories of Jesus' disciples eating from the grain and another story of Jesus healing a man. These stories of a gleaning and a story of a healing. And the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples walking in the grain field and picking off uh, the wheat, which isn't uncommon. There was a tradition in in Jewish culture where you would harvest your field, but you would leave a strip uh, unharvested. So people who are... um, poor or without means, they were able to go and kind of gather their own food. It was a way of kind of uh, donating to the poor. So they aren't mad that the disciples are doing this, but they are mad that they're doing it on the Sabbath because in their eyes, picking the wheat and rubbing it in your hands is no different than gathering and harvesting and using a huge machine. In their eyes, they're working, but they don't understand the true meaning of Sabbath. In the other account, you have Jesus in a synagogue teaching, but this man comes up who has a shriveled hand and he wants to heal him. And these two stories are different days, but they're on the Sabbath and they're grouped together to prove how Jesus has authority. Jesus in a synagogue is being watched by the teachers who say are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So their mindsets at the very get-go, is we're going to try to trap Jesus into doing something because we know that you shouldn't help someone on a Sabbath like that. That's forbidden. Seems very, very weird. In both accounts, you have the religious leaders taking their old understanding of the law and the Sabbath and using it to counter Jesus, who has the authority. And he points to his authority in a few ways. The first is he, he speaks up. 
If you go back and read, you'll kind of see that the Pharisees don't necessarily address Jesus directly. They're more aiming their questions at his disciples, and Jesus is the one who steps up and responds, kind of showing that, hey, he's, he's the rabbi, they're following him, he has told them what is good, and therefore they should speak to him. The second is he connects himself with David in one of these stories, David being the messianic king prototype, the one who all of Israel wanted to come back, so he connects himself with David, and then he declares himself this term, the son of man. In that short section, verses 6, 1 to 5, he is aligning himself with the actions of David, who in the story is doing something technically unlawful. He was going into the temple, eating the food that was only allowed for the priest, but because he has been given God's blessing, because he is the king, he is able to do something that they would say is wrong, but he is not punished. He is actually uh, uplifted in the story. But then he uses this term, son of man, which carries a lot in I don't use that word lightly. It carries a lot of weight to the Jewish people. It actually comes up about 80 times in the Gospels, and it comes from this passage in Daniel 7 that says this. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was laid into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when he says son of man, that verse comes right into their mind, especially to the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious elites, because they know this text forward and backwards. Jesus declares that he is the son of man, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is striking that hyperlink that all Jews would recognize. He's saying, I am the only one who has authority over all people, all nations, and all languages. He was to have global rule over everyone. This is a huge claim Jesus is saying about himself. All of God's authority is given to him, not just over the earthly realm, but over the most holy of days of the week, the Sabbath. So when he asked them at the healing of the man, what is lawful to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? It is not only a got you question to the Pharisees who know in their hearts that they have been stumped. In Mark 3, it even adds in the same scene, this added line that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. But he asked them to show them and the readers that Jesus has the ultimate authority and understanding of how things are supposed to play out. Jesus understands the value of the old way and he has the authority to declare that the new kingdom will look like. The old way dictated by religious bureaucracy and unyielding rules was not how the new kingdom would look like. These stories are all at the end of a series of opposition against the religious elite and a series of miracles, all designed to push back against the Pharisees. Jesus brings a leper back into the community. He heals a man who has never been able to walk and tells him, hey, grab your mat and walk. He heals them of their sins. He goes and eats and has community and lives life with sinners 
and tax collectors, all things that the old way say are impossible or forbidden. He ends all this with declaring that he is the Son of God, Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is not tossing aside the old way, but he is correcting it, making sure that the new kingdom is based solely on God's will and God's alone. We know where Jesus is working towards. And it is not a mistake that now, after this scene, is when Jesus finally calls his disciples. He has just spent the last few chapters saying, hey, this is the old way. I have come to flip things upside down. And it's now I'm going to call my disciples who are going to go, call, go and preach and share that the new kingdom has arrived. He has set a framework for what the new kingdom will be and preparing his closest followers to go preach that new kingdom. So where do we go with all this. There are a lot of things we can learn from these stories, and my hope is that you don't just come on Sunday to learn new things or to hear cool stories, but ask yourself, okay, how do these stories of Jesus affect me now and today? The story of Luke is setting us up to look toward the new kingdom. I think we should do just that, but not an idle expectation. For today, we know what the new kingdom will look like. Following Jesus is not about following a set of rules or regulations, but is solely based on becoming more like Jesus. Paul writes in one of his letters, I'm, follow me as I follow Jesus. That's the call of being a disciple. To be a disciple, a good disciple, lives a life that emulates their rabbi. It should be so much that the way your rabbi walks is the way you should walk. The way the rabbi talks is how you should talk. The way they think is how you should think. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And I wish I could give you a set of rigid to-dos and checklists like, hey, do these things and you're good. Don't do that and you're wrong. But it's, it's not a law code. If we look at what Jesus shows us the new kingdom will look like, a place where the outcast are brought in, where the suffering is elevated, that the broken are made whole, how can you do that in your reality today? And I'm not saying that you are the ones who are going to bring salvation to people. The changing of hearts is always the sole responsibility of God and not you. And praise the Lord, that's the case. But what does it look like for you to live in a life that shows the people of the good news in the new kingdom. And as we move into worship, we're gonna have a few people in the front of the stage who are uh, ready and willing to pray for you in any way you desire. Going into the new kingdom is something that doesn't take a toll, doesn't require you to pay something, doesn't require you to give something. Jesus has already paid all of that on the cross. But as we go into worship, I, I pray that someone comes to mind or like, this is a person who needs to experience what the new kingdom is. There is a family, there is a community, there is something or someone in my life where the new kingdom can bring them so much peace, so much joy. Know that repentance is based off joy of celebration. It's not based solely on mourning and melancholy. 
Jesus has come to do something that drastically changes the world. And I pray that one of you can be that example for someone. You can be that mini Jesus for someone who brings them into the new kingdom. So please join me in worship. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week.